Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, Josh, it's about recovery. Our podcast is brought to you by knowyourscript.org. Without those folks, we couldn't do this podcast. Um, I suggest everybody stop by, especially if you have an upcoming uh, doctor's appointment where you may be discussing uh, pain management options. They have a great uh, section on their website to help people uh, figure out some questions to ask. Sometimes it's a little intimidating to talk to your doctor. You don't want to sound like a goober. So, uh, go by there. If you have, uh, if you're like me and you found some old prescriptions in the house, you're not sure how to get rid of them or where to take them. They also have information on that. They have meetups occasionally where you can drop them off and other locations, uh, around Salt Lake and Utah. So thanks so much to, uh, knowyourscript.org. I'm Dr. Matt. That's producer Josh, and Josh, we're missing somebody. Yeah, you called me earlier because you were locked out of the building, and I was like, well, <laughs> that's what about... That's not part of it. I, oh, yeah, I was locked I mean, out of the building, yeah, but that's yeah. true. We, we were missing Casey. Yeah, and I was like, well, where's Casey? And you're like, he's not here. And I was like, oh, I, I can't forgot. believe you forgot Casey. <laughs> so Casey is, I think, doing something important like golfing in Pinehurst in North Carolina. So yeah. he's living a better life than we are here today, don't you think? He always does, uh, I don't though. No, it's amazing here. In he Salt always Lake. does. Well, uh, we'll have Casey back next week. But in the meantime, we have an awesome guest. I want to introduce a good friend of mine here in a few minutes, uh, Dr. Howard Weeks. But before we get to Howard, you know, I just drove in. We did a road trip to California over the, this last week, and I just drove in late last night. Can you believe it? I'm here and, and everything. You should have called in sick like Casey. <laughs> I didn't have anything fun to do. But um, the truth is I wanted to bring something up because it was a little nostalgic for me. When I was a young kid, I grew up in Fullerton, California, you know, until I moved to Utah at the ripe old age of 10, I think, or 11. But uh, before that, we lived in Fullerton, and I had never taken my kids to, to see my old neighborhood. And so we were there to, to do Disneyland, but on Friday night we went there and I got talking about like the neighborhood and how much it had changed. We went to the elementary school and, and I had two really good friends that both lived right across the street from me. And the three of us ran around a lot together, uh, Dave and Kim. And, uh, I realized, uh, as you know, I was, uh, walking around Disneyland. I haven't, I've talked to Kim recently, uh, but Dave and Kim both developed serious, drug addictions no uh, in their young adult life. And unfortunately, Dave passed away from an overdose, uh, probably in his late 20s. 
and I had lost most touch with him. But Kim, uh, my good, uh, probably my better friend of the two, uh, he did everything, sold everything, did several stints in prison, but now he's doing really well, except for guess what? He can't stop the nicotine. Oh, no. Yeah, the nicotine's got him. Just like Casey. Don't tell Casey I said uh, that. Yeah, 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 I know. Dirty secrets. I know. But I thought that was interesting. The three of us, little guys, hanging out there. Uh, we all lived on the same street, uh, across the street from each other. And two out of the three of us developed serious uh, drug addictions. And uh, I know that that can happen to anybody. We've talked about on the show lots of times that uh, drug addiction, addiction in general, is not a respecter of persons. It can grab anybody. It doesn't matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was thinking, what if back in those days, this was the late 70s, early 80s. What if back in those days, Josh, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> not your um, but uh, what if what if there was the message out there that there's out today where we try to encourage parents to talk to their kids about drugs and alcohol? That wasn't a thing back then. Right. There was there were no national campaigns. In fact, it was a dirty like you said, it was a dirty secret. Drugs, drug and alcohol abuse uh, yeah. was everywhere, still everywhere. But I think we have more of a, a conversation as a community now. That's definitely true. And I mean, I guess the biggest difference, I definitely wasn't alive back then, but uh, <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> uh, I mean, I just feel like from what I get from the media that drugs were a little more like openly used i guess well on that same street we had these you know, folks that would sit out on their porch and smoke i now know what they were smoking as a kid <laughs> i didn't know what they were smoking and they used to feed their poor bulldog uh, uh miller beer is what i remember they'd a dog would chase us and fall down and we thought it was funny it's super sad <laughs> of course but i mean i i don't know i just i wonder if dave would still be here i wonder if kim would have avoided uh, time in prison and, and big interruptions in his life. So I'm so I guess that little story from my history is just uh, maybe encourage parents. It's uncomfortable. We got to talk to your kids about it. Yep. Uh, junior high kids, sixth, seventh graders, they're smoking weed now. Weeds everywhere. Um, alcohol too. So talk to your kids about it. Um, today, Josh, I'm super excited, uh, and I'm sorry Casey isn't here. To meet my friend uh, Howard Weeks. How are you doing, Howard? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks Howard for Weeks me. is a doctor extraordinary. He's the real deal. <laughs> He's an MD psychiatrist uh, who's taking a little time to visit with us today. And we've known each other a long time. Yeah, uh, probably longer than Josh has been alive. Probably, yeah. About 16 years, 17 years, something like that. <laughs> yeah, Josh is pushing 20. Um, but I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, unfortunately, I've never admitted this to you, but you started me on one of my addictions. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know, comic books? Well, not just comic books. Hellboy. Ah, yes. Yeah, so I was already well well <laughs> down the comic book. Uh, but I remember going into your office when I was, uh, I think you were a couple years ahead of me, and you were now an attending doctor, and I was a, a resident, and I walked in, and I looked on your shelf, and I'm like, oh, and I think you had to kick me out of the office. I was like thumbing through the Hellboy. Uh, so uh, thanks, thanks to you for that. Actually, that's a, been a fun addiction. <laughs> but uh, it's good to have you here, formerly of the University of Utah. Now, mm-hmm. uh, tell us where you're working these days. Sure. So um, it's really great to be here, and I'm really excited about uh, this conversation we're going to have. Uh, I was at the university for about 25 years. As you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm actually a child adolescent psychiatrist and adult psychiatrist. Tell, tell everybody like how you become a psychiatrist because I get this question a lot. Uh, people ask me as a psychologist, what's the difference mm-hmm. between the two? 
Yeah. Well, I would say that you know psychologists are much smarter and better looking. <laughs> oh, that's especially because that's how where this we're going to huh? go. And, and my wife's a psychologist, so I have to be careful. Oh, nailed it! Right. Um, so, as a psychiatrist, I'm a medical doctor. So, I went to medical school, right? And then I chose uh, to go into a residency where you can choose like pediatrics, family practice, surgery, or psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose to go into psychiatry. So then, you after your four years of medical school, you go into a residency. And that's anywhere from four to six years uh, for psychiatry. Right. And if you specialize like I did in child and adolescent psychiatry, it's a little bit longer. Right, right. Okay. And um, I would say that oftentimes, uh, you tell me if you think this is true, uh, psychiatrists, when they we treat the same sorts of things, mm-hmm. mood disorders, anxiety disorders, things like that, uh, we're heavy on the therapies, the talking therapies and behavioral therapies, things like that. And you guys are do that, but you're also a little more heavy on the medical interventions. Right, because as medical doctors, we can prescribe medications. Right. Um, and we work you know, in conjunction with admitting people to hospitals or treatment facilities. The psychiatry initially was rooted in therapy. Um, so psychology and psychiatry really kind of started mm-hmm. uh, the same. Um, but then there was a branch point. And oftentimes uh, in modern medicine, a lot of psychiatrists do do more what we call med management um, but a lot of psychiatrists still are heavily involved in the therapy side and work very closely in like a multidisciplinary team with a psychologist or social worker or other therapist uh, to really help try to provide the best care for their patients that they can. Yeah, and that's how we started working mm-hmm. together at uh, formerly uni, now Huntsman Mental, Huntsman Health, Mental Health Institute. Institute yeah, um, And now you're at... So now I'm at uh, Pathlight Mood and Anxiety Center. I'm the chief medical officer for them. And we don't have one in Salt Lake currently, Correct. but so, there may, may, may be down the, the road. Well, anything's always possible, okay. right? <laughs> we're, we're a national company based out of Denver. We have 14 treatment centers across the country, uh, currently in Colorado, Illinois, uh, Maryland, Texas, and Washington. Okay. Uh, we also are part of Eating Recovery Center, which has another 15 centers across the country that focuses on eating disorders. And you were telling me they, they treat... How many, most of the eating disorders around the country? They do. They treat about 70% of the patients needing what we call intermediate level of care. So that's residential level of care and partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. I, I didn't know about that. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think a lot of times uh, what I – so t- today, today we're going to talk about mental health a little more broadly. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, substance abuse and addictions of all sorts fall into that of, you know – causal and are caused by and all of that. Um, I think a lot of times people think when they come in to see a guy like me, oh, we're just going to talk about our feelings and, you know, how bad our mom's messed up or whatever it was. And I think when they go in to see you, they think, oh, well, I'm just going to get pills. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's a lot more to it, especially in modern psychiatry. There are a lot of there's a lot more to treatment than just talk therapy and medication, although I think both of those are actually very valuable, of course. I agree. And I think actually if you're just doing either one of those, just therapy uh, or just medications, your problem is in the boat. Because it's, it, what's been very clear is it's that combination of treatment. And it needs to be coordinated. And that's why you see successful recovery programs and successful just mental health programs have that multidisciplinary team. Um, and I, I think it's also something you really need to think about is it's you, you know, the patient working with their therapist and with their their doctor, but it's also the impact it has on your family. Um, so a lot of programs are also really focusing on that that continuum of care with your entire family because that 
is a huge component to giving you the support for recovery, be it recovery from anxiety and depression or recovery from substance use. Oh, yeah. Def- um, we talk about, uh, you know, addiction is a family disease. We talk mm-hmm. about that on the show a lot. And I think recovery is a family solution, right? Exactly. Um, I remember being uh, like a naive undergrad student in psychology and I uh, had to volunteer, got to work at the Utah State Mental Health Hospital. Yeah. And uh, that was a really great experience, opened my eyes to a lot of things. But one of the things I learned was the the tremendous recidivism rate. When you bring somebody into the hospital, you have this great environment, you have the treatment team, mm-hmm. and then you just, in the old days, they just send them back and then they just kind of do this revolving door, right. uh, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's just general mental health. You know, a person's going back to their environment. Um, what would you say is different about modern mental health treatment? Well, I think you've hit on actually what one of the challenges we have across the country is that a lot of systems are set up where that's really the only care people get. Acute inpatient for a very short period of time and then back to outpatient. And you really need that intermediate service. And, and that's where that residential level of care, that partial hospitalization, that, that step down where you can spend more time with a patient and actually be able to do this work with the family and, and the true work with the patient to get through the, the comorbid issues that are there. Uh, and it takes a lot more time. And having a coordinated approach to that, I think, is key to getting people better. That's actually why I'm very excited about Pathlight because that, that's what we focus on. We do residential right. partial hospitalization and IOP to bridge that gap. And here in Utah, what's actually really nice is we we have actually two pretty big, amazing systems. We've got uh, the University of Utah, the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. We have Intermountain Healthcare, and they have that full continuum of care for Utahns that need that help. Plus, we actually have a fairly robust public mental health system here with um, the the county based services for Medicaid, and we work together to try to kind of find the right spot for the patients. It's still fragmented. There's still challenges, but we have the opportunity to give the patients what they need. Yeah. Let's find out more about that and some treatments that people may not be aware of when we come back after this. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Okay, we're back. Uh, Today, we have no Casey, uh, but we do have Josh, and most importantly, we have 
my friend Howard Weeks, Dr. Weeks, psychiatrist, who's talking to us about what he does. And especially, I think what I've become more and more interested in in the world of recovery, which are, uh, you know, sober living type in between treatments. So like you were mentioning, we have acute care, which most people can get acute care for psychiatric needs when they need it. Uh, but those are short. Like, I think a lot of people don't know how long would you say a typical acute psychiatric hospitalization is for most adults? For most adults across the country, you're looking at three to five days max. Yeah. And that's, I mean, what if you have bipolar disorder mm-hmm. or, you know, a severe mental health uh, issue or you've been suicidal? Three to five days is not enough. And then on the outpatient side, which is what I do, I mean, if I need to see somebody more than once or twice a week, that's they need more care than outpatient can do. Right. So if you think about going from 24-7 to then once a week, there's a huge gap there. And I think that's where a lot of people uh, relapse into needing more care. I think you're right because it's a real difficulty to figure out how do you find that support or the tools that you need to actually be able to fully recover from your mood, your anxiety, your substance use, and it's a challenge. And it's often not waiting for that one appointment you've got with your outpatient provider. You know, it's a, you need to touch base a lot sooner than that. And what um, another thing that's I get a lot of questions about, and I do my best to answer, but since I don't provide these treatments, um, you know, I, I, I give a very expert answer, of course. But you're you're the expert here to talk about. There are other treatments that people mm-hmm. have been asking about. Let's start with ketamine. That's become really what would you say in the last five years, much more common and popular. We're trying to figure out protocols. But on the street, it's called Special K. It's a drug that people abuse, right? Correct. And I think that that's the challenge that we have in in psychiatry and medicine in general is for years, we have not had significant breakthroughs in medications. I mean, we had the SSRIs, um, monoamine-based medications, Prozac, Zoloft. And those those were phenomenal. They were, but they've been around forever. They've been around. And we have new medications, but they're all basically the same. You know, slight variations, hit slightly different chemicals in your brain, but it's not a dramatic different process. And unfortunately, we know that sometimes up to 30% of patients don't respond to medications uh, that we currently have. So there are... There have been a lot of investigations and trying to figure out some new medicines. Ketamine is one uh, that has gained a lot of popularity in the last five years. Uh, In fact, there's billboards everywhere and people are offering ketamine in a lot of different ways, which sometimes is a little scary. I'll tell you, I'm a skeptical person when it Mm -hmm. comes to treatments. Um, In fact, I remember when I was in graduate school and one of my uh, trainer said, you know, the art of therapy. And I just cringed because I wanted to be scientific. Yeah. And there is an art to therapy, but we also really do rely on the science. And anytime something seems sort of flavor of the month, I get a little nervous. Sure. But like, what do you think about ketamine? And they're popping up. I mean, the University of Utah has a ketamine treatment clinic now. That That is true. So there is good evidence-based care for mental health disorders. Ketamine is a tool is a treatment option that has some good evidence-based care. Uh, It's limited, not as much as we know about other things like Prozac or Zoloft, or even things like electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic stimulation. But there are 
research studies that have gone on and true evidence and in, in good randomized controlled trials, which is kind of our gold standard of how do we assess something's really good versus Matt, you've had a really good experience. You went and got it and it works for you. Kind of like the case study sort yeah, of situation. Or even just the anecdotal of I yeah. heard it kind of worked. Yeah. Um, and we're learning more about it. But these things are done in controlled environments. It's not where you go and just take it in. And like you mentioned, a lot of people abuse ketamine on the street or can. Yeah. This is not done in those same doses. It's not even delivered in that same way. So if a person came in for a ketamine treatment, uh, what would it look like for yeah. them? So, so there's several different ways that ketamine is given. The FDA-approved way is there's actually a, a drug called S-ketamine. Um, Spravata is the brand name. And that's a nasal inhalation. Um, but it's not where the doctor prescribes it. You take it home. Uh, okay. It's prescribed, and it has to be monitored in a doctor's office. So you go to the doctor's office. They get the uh, your drug out. You take uh, a sniff of it, one to two snorts, depending on the dosing that the provider is trying to give you. And then you're observed for actually two hours. Yeah, nursing staff there to Nursing make staff sure. to monitor blood pressure and, and make sure you're not having problems. And then they're watching to see you know, the effect from an antidepressant standpoint. You can also give ketamine um, off-label. So a lot of things we do in medicine is off-label, meaning there's not a, a particular uh, drug company that's gotten FDA approval for a certain thing, mm. um, especially in pediatrics. In fact, most antibiotics that we use, most drugs that we use in pediatrics are technically off-label because the drug companies haven't spent the millions of dollars to do studies to get FDA approval. Um, so that's a standard way that we treat all illnesses in medicine. But for ketamine, what you see is those other ways are some people will actually uh, still compound ketamine, uh, just a different version basically than the FDA approved version, and still give intranasal um, inhalation. There's also IV intravenous I've ketamine. I've had a few patients do the IV version. And that's the one that actually has a lot of research and studies yeah. behind it uh, for many years. And that's right now kind of the standard, although the inhalation is becoming much more accepted and there's more and more data coming out. There's also some places that will do injections of ketamine. Um, but again, these are all monitored at specific doses. And it's not the same that you would see when people are you know raving or using it in an abusive way. Yeah, manner. right. Um, we also use ketamine for chronic pain. So anesthesiologists and, and pain physicians will use ketamine. They use very different doses and different infusion times. But if you come to like University of Utah clinic uh, where they do IV ketamine, it's basically about a 40-minute infusion. Um, you're working with the physician who assess you, decide that uh, you actually have a, an illness that they can treat, meaning depression. Um, and then do you they usually the want people to do like medication first, try other things before, or can you just, if you're really struggling with depression, come up and get it? Yeah, I think you can always go and, and talk to a ketamine provider about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, most most patients that make it to seeing a psychiatrist have probably already tried something, mm -hmm. either medications or therapy. It's rare that I would ever see someone that has never tried anything. Does it mean you? You can't go and seek kind of those what we call neuropsychiatric interventional services, things like TMS, ketamine, ECT, without having gone through those steps. No. You can, but that'd but be you uncommon. Can, but it's right? a little more uncommon. Yeah. These are more the re treatment refractory. They've tried kind of the more standard uh, approaches, and now they're needing that kind of next level care. Okay, let's move on to. I, I think ketamine's a lot of questions on that. What about TMS? I'm not sure people know yeah. much about that. So, so there's two kind of classic ways of, of treating people with treatment-resistant mood disorders, patients that have failed like traditional therapy or medication management. And that's been electroconvulsive therapy and TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
TMS has been FDA approved in the United States since about 2009. And what it involves is taking a MRI strength magnet and you're, you put a coil on the outside of your skull, just kind of rest up against it. It's in this area called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, but it's basically it's kind my of favorite prefrontal right cortex. in the front of your head. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And it stimulates that magnetic uh, field turns on and off really fast. That's how an MRI works. When mm-hmm. you go in, you hear the banging and the magnetic field's going on and off. And a magnetic field that is going on and off really fast will cause a conductive um, will cause a conductive field in a sorry a magnetic field that is going on and off really fast will cause an electrical con- electrical current in a conductive material your brain happens to be a conductive material right, right. so that magnetic field will actually electrically stimulate your brain but not enough to cause a seizure just enough to go 3 or 5 centimeters into your your brain which barely passes your skull so it's the outside of your mm-hmm. cortex the mm-hmm. outer part of mm-hmm. your brain and it stimulates those neurons. So what it's doing is electrically stimulating the neurons in the same way that if I give you a medication like Prozac or Zoloft that goes in and chemically stimulates those neurons. Right. So it's replicating the same pathways that we give when we give pharmacologic interventions for patients. Yeah, so the stimulation still creates a chemical change, but it's a different delivery system. Right, and so instead of having to take a pill and then that pill goes over your entire body and you may have side effects, that's what – Happens, all you people have side effects because right. it doesn't just go to your brain. It kind of goes all body. over. This is, in theory, a way that you would have no side effects because it's directly stimulating the area. Or for someone that just didn't respond to certain medications, maybe they'll respond better to this route of treatment. That's what I've seen mostly with my patients is they've been uh, – they just haven't had a positive response to the mm-hmm. medications in the past, and this is a – an option. And when we come back, this is the big question. I, I have people all the time say, oh, they don't do that anymore with ECT or electro, electric shock therapy, it mm-hmm. used to be called. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk more about that when we come back uh, with Dr. Howard Weeks. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. All right. We're back with Dr. Howard Weeks. We're talking about. Um, uh, I don't know if we'd call them alternative therapies necessarily or treatments. They they are a little different than what people typically think of as just your Prozac medication type treatments or um, uh, talk therapy, cognitive therapy. Um, we're now we've we've been talking about uh, ketamine and transcranial magnetic stimulation, stimulation TMS. Um, I, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, I've had this for a long time in my office. I have a turn of the century. Uh, home electric shock machine. Yeah. And it's, uh, it comes in this really neat wooden box that, like, they made everything uh, 120 years ago. And it has, some of them have a crank handle and mm-hmm. they, they create, create static electricity. Mine came with these gigantic batteries, which I think altogether might be sort of a nine volt experience. <laughs> and you, and it, they used to believe that, and there were handles and you'd flip it up the switch. It's very cool. And it, uh, it would shock you at home. And so back then, electricity being fairly new, mm-hmm. they thought it could cure everything. It was one of those panaceas for, right. you know, anything that ails you, you can shock yourself out of it. We, we know that isn't true, and so now they're just sort of novelty things. But the reality is our brains do work on electricity and mm-hmm. chemical transmission, and so it makes sense that with uh, modern technology we'd be looking into uh, increasingly 
you know, various ways to use both electrical interventions and chemical interventions Mm -hmm. to help, whether it's pain management or mood or anxiety or other sorts of issues. And so ECT, when I bring that up occasionally, I'll have people say, oh, they don't still do that because I think their only knowledge of it might be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest movie or something uh, Hollywood like that. But the truth is, uh, I've seen you do ECT treatments mm-hmm. with patients. Um, and uh, there are some side effects, but it's an increasing science. And so tell us, like, what what kind of patient would go in for ECT or TMS? And then, um, like, what would the experience be like? Because I, I think a sure. lot of people don't even know it's still practiced. Yeah. So, so let's step back for a second and say, so ECT has actually been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was actually kind of proven and shown to be effective in the 1930s. Um, and at that time, we had no treatment for any psychiatric illness at all. No medications. No medications. Yep. And, and really, it was a lot of kind of what we would now consider very weird treatment ideas, you know, the cold baths to try to right. induce people to pop out of their psychosis or things like that. And what they found with ECT, it was very effective. Uh, worked really well, and patients actually tolerated it really well. But initially in the 1930s, they didn't have general anesthesia. But then mm-hmm. by the 1950s, when ECT really took off, we had general anesthesia. So the way ECT has always really been done is someone is put under anesthesia just like you're going to have surgery to have your hernia repaired or your gallbladder taken out. So you don't feel any pain. And then the psychiatrist attached a big rubber band and two discs above your eyes or to the side of your head, depending on the, the placement they're going to do. And they deliver a stimulation. That stimulation is enough to light like a 100-watt light bulb for half a second to a second. Oh, So very okay. little stimulation because your brain is in this constant state of balance. So mm. It doesn't take a whole lot to cause you to have a seizure. That's why if someone hits their head or gets in a wreck or something, they may have a seizure because your brain's kind of sensitive. Yeah. Um, but that little stimulus will then cause you to have a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. But because you're under anesthesia, you don't move. You just lay pretty much still. Um, oftentimes, we'll put a blood pressure cuff up on your hand or your foot to keep the muscle-paralyzing medicine that we use with anesthesia not in it. So I can f- see the hand or see the foot move so I can see how good of a seizure you have. Okay. Um, and then the patient wakes up after about 15, 20 minutes. Um, just kind of like if you've ever seen someone that has epilepsy, when they have a seizure, they're kind of confused groggy. and groggy yeah. for 15 to 45 minutes as they kind of wake up from that. And that's the same thing with ECT. With ECT, it's not just one treatment. You Unfortunately, you have to do a series of treatments, typically 10 to 12, um, to get you over an acute episode of like severe depression or psychosis. Mm-hmm. ECT is used for the severe illnesses, uh, for patients that are suicidal, um, hospitalized and can't function, medications aren't working. That That's kind of the – used to be viewed as the treatment of last resort. It's not the treatment of last resort. It's just the treatment for someone that's not responding to, to kind of less interventional treatments. And that's what I remember um, so a long time ago, 15, I don't know, 16 years ago, a long time ago, there was uh, – when I worked in the hospital directly more often – there, were, there was a patient that was what we would call sort of catatonic. Right. right? So, mean, so meaning not moving, kind of stuck and frozen, mm-hmm. doesn't respond to you when you try to talk to so them. So very severe depression, mm-hmm. right? Just wasn't functional. Medications weren't helpful. And as uh, I followed him through, I believe you were you and, and a couple other docs were doing the ECT treatments, mm-hmm. uh, I was amazed at the transformation. 
this kid, uh, he's a young adult, uh, became himself again. Right. Honestly, it was one of those training moments for mm-hmm. me uh, where I was like just blown away that this treatment could to, could do a 180 for a person. Right. And, and that's what's really exciting and, and, and nice about ECT is you can take sometimes the sickest patients and get them well the fastest. Um, now, there are side effects with ECT. There's a risk when you have anesthesia, mm-hmm. although the risk of dying or having a complication with ECT is basically the risk of just undergoing anesthesia. And we do anesthesia for millions of cases everything. across yeah. the country for everything, hernia, tonsils. Not to take like it lightly, but, but it happens all the time. Right. Um, but there's also a potential for memory confusion. Um, and that's real. And that's something that you have and to talk to And that's a study a I've done in the past mm-hmm. is we were tracking... I think what we discovered was a formation of new memories is interrupted. So you don't really lose knowledge of who you were. Correct. But during those weeks of treatment, uh, you're losing a little bit of formation of new memory. Yeah, the, the analogy that I give patients is saying, you know, if you're on your computer and you're typing in a Word document and you haven't saved that to the hard drive, and if I come by and flip the switch on your computer and turn it on and off, you just lost everything you had in your Word document. Mm-hmm. And your brain's kind of like that with memories. It mm-hmm. takes two to three days to form a good long-term memory. And if I'm doing ECT three times a week with you, so every other day, I'm rebooting your brain. So yeah. you're not having a time to form that long-term memory. Now, as soon as we're done doing ECT, we're not rebooting your brain anymore. You're going to keep forming memories. So it's just that time you're getting ECT is often kind of a little fuzzy. And while you're getting ECT, you may have a hard time because you might get a little confused remembering things in the past. But when ECT is over, those memories should come back. It's just that time you're getting the treatments is the typical experience. Now, everyone's a little bit different, and some people have reported you know, more memory problems. But you also have to remember that when people have severe depression, anxiety, right. psychosis, their brains aren't working very well. Their memory isn't very good at that time. Yeah, I would say it's worse yeah. in those severe depression states. Uh, people can't encode or create mm-hmm. new memories. Um, so much better to to get some treatment that can turn right. that around. Yeah. And, and you made a comment earlier about people say, well, I can't believe they're still doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, ECT still remains the most effective treatment we have in medicine for severe psychiatric illness. It works in 70 to 90 percent of patients. Really? I didn't it's not, not 100 percent. There's still well, 10 to 30 percent of people that don't respond, depending on your diagnosis. Um, but it's very effective. Yeah. It's very safe. The movies that were done, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you also have to remember that's not how ECT was done at the time. Yeah, it was that's just, how Hollywood chose to portray right, it. Right. Um, and even now in modern cases, you see ECT being used as a torture device um, or in uh, – uh, was it Homeland where Carrie, the main character, oh, was about that. to help and solve things and then she had to go in for her ECT treatment for yeah. bipolar. Oh. Well, that doesn't happen. Right, you know, right. where <laughs> that last second, oh, we're going to put you under, you're going to forget oh, what by you're the thinking. Way. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, but that's the drama from a TV sort of standpoint. Yeah. Um, and what we see is, when, I think the ideal way to treat patients is the patient's there, their family is there, their spouse, their parents, depending on uh, who they are, so that they can be there for the entire treatment and understand it and see it and then help the patient uh, understand what they underwent because that way you can have conversations and everyone's on the same page. So it's not mysterious. We're demystifying and educating. Um, And that's one of the things that um, uh, when I – I tend to be a little overboard on that and and Mm -hmm. do a lot of psychoeducation with people. But um, I think that I would never want to do something if I didn't know what I was doing. 
Right. I just think of it that way. And so by bringing the whole family in, then they're like, oh, it is safe. It is effective. Well, what, what families will, you know, we'll have them stay in the treatment room. And they can um, watch so the they procedure. watch the yeah, entire yeah. thing. So you think about it is if if your loved one goes in for a hernia repair or their gallbladder taken out, you don't go in and watch the surgery. Right. <laughs> you know, you're, you're there and they, they go off, you know, behind the curtain into yeah. the, the operating room and then they come back. Um, we actually are showing them everything that happens the entire time. Yeah. And that dramatically decreases anxiety. And, and in fact, I would say that those family members then become the best ambassadors for helping people say, hey, you've got a severe illness that's not getting better. Why don't you go see someone and talk to them about it and see what the options are? Um, so I see ECT as that very essential option for patients. Mm-hmm. I don't see it as the only option. And that's what's really exciting about we have other things now like TMS treatments. We have ketamine treatments. So alternatives, because, again, maybe that's going to work better for certain patients or be less invasive for certain patients or have less side effects. So the more tools that we can have gives our providers a much better opportunity to help people get through their recovery. Why do you think people don't know about these as as much? Oh, I mean, you and I know about it, but what right. about everybody else? I think it's been interesting. There has been such a, a stigma against, well, one, mental illness, just to begin with. Just, you know? Yeah, it's I mean, huge. I, you know, back before in the, in the 30s and the 50s, it was kind of like cancer was was the bad thing no one ever talked about it, it was right. the c word right and and we've got we've gotten over that right everyone thinks about cancer we right. think about breast cancer awareness and and just you know we have the Huntsman Mental Health Institute here and every in time Utah. I have a cough I think I have it right <laughs> and, and and it's not a it's not viewed as a a negative thing yeah, or a, a personality yeah. thing that you got cancer it's like you have a medical illness mental health is exactly the same right. way but we tend to view that especially substance abuse as a lack of will Mm-hmm. Um, or as we know, there's biologic underpinnings. There, there are behaviors that come along with those illnesses that, that cause that's a lot of disruption. See, so, and that's what And that's all see. they think there is. Right. So then they think, well, that's a choice and a behavior you're making. So we have a huge way to go with the behavioral health, mental health destigmatization. But that's why I think we don't hear about a lot of things. Because one, people don't talk about it. Right. Um, now, with the pandemic, we're actually hearing a lot more talk about mental health mm-hmm. and recognition of taking care of yourself. But we, we still have a long way to go to say, well, what are the right treatments? At least people, I think, now think about suicide prevention lines. They right. think about going in and doing talk therapy and at least talking to their primary care provider or their uh, psychiatric provider for medications, and they're more open to that. But until you get to those providers, like the psychiatrist and the, the mental health experts, you may not hear about things like ECT or TMS or even ketamine. Although ketamine, I, I think, is is kind of done that jump because of uh, the the need to advertise for it. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's yeah. not uh, – most insurances weren't covering ketamine for many years, so it was a fee-for-service thing. So it became a business opportunity. Yeah. Um, so that did get the word out in ways that – may have hampered us, I think, to a degree in the mental health field, because sometimes that puts things a little more on that is a little too um, dicey. Oh, for sure. So you so you mentioned COVID. Um, before we wrap up, I want to get your take on COVID, because we've talked a lot on this show about how COVID has created sort of a wave. You know, the next pandemic is sort of a mental health yeah. crisis. But you just mentioned maybe a couple positive things have come out of of COVID. Is that what you're saying? No, well, mental health wise, like I do think there's at least over these last several years that has coincided with the pandemic, there is more discussion about mental health and more mm-hmm. recognition. I think the pandemic has worsened 
yeah. our mental health pandemic. Because <laughs> the reality is we have one in the United States. We For have sure. so many patients that are suffering from depression, anxiety, opioid, substance abuse, and only a fraction of them are getting the care. The that number they need. one reason people call in sick to work is mental health, not physical illness. Right. And from an insurance, I used to work for an insurance company. I was the chief medical officer. And I can tell you, insurance companies care about this tremendously because we know that it's, it's expensive to take care of medical aspects. Mm-hmm. But patients with comorbid mental health, mood, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, their medical cost is multiple times more than someone without. Oh, definitely. So if we can treat people holistically, mm-hmm. treat their psychiatric illness and their medical illness, it actually saves money for society. And then that we can have more money <laughs> to invest in other services, right, for other patients. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I would love to see become just very commonplace in the work force is that there isn't really a distinguishing factor between fit, you know, taking a day off for physical health and mental health. And then having a protocol or teach people, what do you do? Just staying home and eating a donut and watching Netflix, that might get you out of work for the day, but it didn't do anything to help your mental health. Right. And if you're depressed, do we know where to go for services and, and how to, you know, I, I would love that. I think one of the things with, with the COVID pandemic is since everybody sort of pretty much is going through the same thing, that's why the discussion mm-hmm. has been a little bit more out there on mental health because so many people are experiencing the same uh, stay home, try to work out of a job, run a business, all those kind of pressures. Everybody can relate. And now all of a sudden people are like, it's a little bit more okay to talk about feeling depressed or anxious or worried. And I also like to think that we've seen uh, the explosion in virtual care and people are getting more comfortable with Zooming, that now there's more improvement in access. It's still a challenge. It's by no means fixed, but it's another lever that we didn't have to pull before. And now we have access. I've said on the show, I was a horrible skeptic about how effective cognitive behavioral therapy would be Mm -hmm. on a screen. And I have been proven wrong. Gladly. I'm so thankful that we have it because now we have people that normally would have to rearrange their whole day to come in for a one hour session. They can, I have a lot of students who stay in school go into the counselor's office, have their appointment with me, go right back to class. Right. So the, and, the and technology that saved the parent from going to pick them up and right. taking time off of work. Take time it off saved work. the kid from missing that extra travel time. Yep. I have patients that I've been able to do a lot more follow-ups with patients in my practice because they can step out, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. step out to their car on their yeah. lunch break and, and have a visit with me. Or mm-hmm. if they're at home, they can step into another room. And it's so much more efficient. Yeah. Um, there are still things I like to do in person, and at times that's important, but virtual has made it much better to be able to follow up and check in yeah. uh, and I think improved care dramatically. Yeah, I think the access is big and especially with uh, mental health, over it helps overcome the stigma because you just have so much more access available to you anywhere you are, work or home or whatever. And it gives you the ability to you know to extend that care. So one of the things we've done at Pathlight is developed a virtual IOP, intensive outpatient program. And, and we've seen a dramatic improvement in attendance because, mm. again, it's it's less friction for someone to get there. Oh, yeah. Um, and they can – if they're going from a center uh, that, you know, that they had to travel to to get that residential or day treatment level of care, but then they live 20 miles away, mm-hmm. you know, trying to drive back for an intensive outpatient is hard. If you can do it virtually, it's a lot more efficient and a lot more comfortable for the patient. Well, it's safer because you're not driving on the streets. It, mm-hmm. it costs less in time and money, yeah. you know, gas and all those things. And 
I think you and I are fortunate enough that we probably don't have to worry about our gas too much, uh, although I did just drive to California. But uh, the truth is there's so many people that that is a deal breaker sometimes for them to get to treatment. And taking time off of work, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just the, the your therapy time or your treatment time. It's that travel time that yeah. can sometimes be twice as long. And you may work at a place where that's tough to, to pull off. Exactly. Well. Howard, Dr. Weeks, it's so great to have you in here today. I really appreciate it. Plus, it's fun to catch up. I haven't had a chance to see you in a while. Uh, tell us uh, one more time about uh, Pathlight, and, and if people wanted to find out more about it, where would they go? Sure. So um, Pathlight is a treatment center that helps focus on mood, anxiety, trauma, OCD. Uh, we provide residential, partial hospitalization, and intensive outpatient level of care. We can be found at pathlightbh.com. Uh, um, and we'll be happy to help uh, anyone that is looking for services and needing help. Okay. Well, thanks. It's good to know about those resources that are out there because, honestly, I think that's another big uh, roadblock to treatment is just knowing where to go. So that uh, go, go to their website and you can see what they have and what they're all about. Um, any final thoughts? Another way to get a hold of us is to call our intake number, and that's uh, 877-825-825. 8584. That's a toll-free number, 877-825-8584. And if people are interested and want to find out more, they can call that number and just have a good conversation with somebody. Yeah, we have master-level clinicians that can help do assessments to determine what someone needs. Okay, and that's huge because we don't always know what we need, and talking to an expert like yourself has been great. So thanks for coming on today, Howard. It's awesome to see you. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate it. Uh, I think time. I learned something. How about you, Josh? Yeah, it's good to know about other treatments. Uh, people can tend to get discouraged with the with the medication and therapy combo. It's good to know that there are other options out there. And I think we're going to continue to have improved and better options for people. So yeah. I, I see psychiatry as any, entering a new resonant, renaissance of options for us being able to help provide the best treatments for patients. Yeah, I agree. The science and technology is booming, and uh, definitely psychiatry is on the forefront of that. So thanks for coming. Thanks for listening, everybody. Casey will be back uh, with me and Josh next week. Uh, Appreciate you tuning in. As always, uh, Project Recovery is brought to you by the good folks at knowyourscript.org. Don't forget the Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.